Hi, everybody. It's Charlie um, with the um, podcast uh, To Hell and Back. Uh, this week, I'm going to mainly spoke, speak about and back tools for getting out of hell. But uh, before that, I just want to say that um, uh, last week, it was just a very meaningful podcast uh, with Cedar Coons about uh, her sister's suicide. Um, we went over it in some detail, um, painful, painful detail, um, but also, you know, it really was realistic, um, really what she had has had to go through, and she brings a lot uh, of ability to the table to do that and to come to acceptance. Um, and uh, we realized by the time we finished that we had, uh, we really wanted to go another time. This will be our third time, not today, but next next week um, at this time. So I um, just wanted to, to let you know that anybody who's listening live to this, though I'm assuming most people listen after it's on the website. Um, so that's, that's just that. Uh, I think next time we'll be focusing a lot on exactly how did Cedar get through this to the degree that she did and, uh, and find the level of uh, acceptance and forgiveness in herself for all kinds of things that she did and uh, not that it's all taken care of because it's a lifelong issue, but I think uh, next time we'll be very focused on what did she do. Um, I thought during this time, I mean, just leading into this, say that as many of you know, though many of you who sometime might listen to this might not know, um, I've been practicing, learning and practicing and teaching and so on, uh, DBT, Dialectical Behavior Therapy, for uh, since about uh, 1988. And so it's a long time. That's, what, 30 years. Um, and in doing so, I feel I've become very intimate with it uh, have become deeply affected by DBT, not just as a technique for treating individuals with borderline personality disorder and other related disorders and, and suicidal uh, desires or attempts and behaviors, but um, also just finding that in this treatment, um, Marshall Linehan developed, there is a brilliant juxtaposition of these three huge paradigms for dealing with life, the paradigms of acceptance based on mindfulness, of, uh, of changing behavior based largely on behaviorism and uh, cognitive behavioral therapies, and dialectics based on dialectical philosophy. Just the juxtaposition of these really makes it possible to uh, have many ways to go when you're trying to solve really um, difficult and um, enduring problems um, and to get out of hell or get through it and then get out of it. So it's, uh, it's got so much to offer. And when I did write a book that was published last year or might be year before last now, uh, my book of um, the principles in act, DBT principles in action, it was a step in the direction of what I want to do today. Uh, writing that book was really um, about trying to articulate what DBT uh, is um, for, you know, so that when you, at, the, at a deeper level of what are the principles, what are the paradigms, um, so that one doesn't have to get stuck trying to just do it like a cookbook. Uh, where it turns out to be a little superficial and a little rigid uh, and uh, unwieldy because there's you know so many strategies and over 85 and over 100 skills. Uh, so there's um, a, when you get all of that, it's very hard to practice a treatment and still just feel fluid, feel like yourself, and feel just human. It uh, becomes very technological. So. And I wrote the book, it really is about um, if you grasp the principles of this, how would you do it in a way that is both true to yourself 
and your values and your personality and uh, and at the same time adherent to the treatment manual since that's been proven in, in evidence to uh, to be so helpful so that though was um, really aimed at therapists psychotherapists that book and then I started realizing you know there's so there there's such valuable lessons here for everybody uh, not just psychotherapists but everybody everybody um, in their lives uh, of to use these paradigms and use the principles and some of the skills and the strategies to try to cope with really un, you, know, you know things that that even though they come up in everybody's lives it almost seems like we shouldn't have to face such difficult things but we do and uh, and so this this gives a way to get to get through hell uh, to get out of hell and uh, I think the flip side of this is that if you're trying to achieve something in your life that's extraordinary um, that in itself is like a self-imposed hell you have to get up a mountain so I would say these are these are skills and principles and strategies for trying to um, get out of hell or to get up to the top of a mountain that you've designated as something you want to do in your life uh, so uh, those three paradigms I broke down the three of those into um, into a f three sets of principles and uh, that make it easy to transport them from the psychotherapy situation into real life uh, regular life and and for everybody because really it has nothing to do with becoming being able to read a book or or understand all of the details and principles but it's sort of like people know these things when they do their best um, so I want today to talk about one of those paradigms and it's the paradigm of changing your behavior sometimes this involves changing the behavior of other people um, you know you want to change the behavior of your child whether it's a child child or an adult child you want to change the behavior of your spouse or your partner or your friend or your parents and you want to change your own behavior so these are principles that would um, be appropriate to all of those things though it's very important to realize that when you're trying to change someone else uh, if you're trying to change them in a direction that they actually don't want to change in it's just inevitable frustration so you really have to keep refocusing on what you're really trying to change um, and you're more reliable if you can be trying to change your own behavior um, towards someone else uh, and and to the degree possible change them but realize that you might not be able to so to get a little spirit of what this is and why I think it has also to do with getting to the top of the mountain I want to read something to you um, I'm not going to tell you in the first part of this it's just very brief but uh, where this is coming from then I'll, I'll tell you but the reason is that it's coming from a certain endeavor in someone's life trying to get through something um, that could be anybody's endeavor of doing anything like cedar trying to get through uh, the fact that her sister suicided and all of that that it brought into focus for her it could be uh, all kinds of things so I'll just say this this is uh, toward the beginning of a book and then I'll tell you what it is maybe you'll recognize it um, so early in the book early in the first couple pages it says uh, um, we are as one this will be our time our collective passion catapults us into an altered state of zeal our voices pump through the humid late afternoon of a sultry day on September September 23rd 2011 we are believers uh, I go back to the silent rituals hydrating yoga stretches deep breathing a meditation of calm and focus I am talking to myself very slowly I inhale with one syllable exhale with the next imbuing my brain with the mandates of this impossibly impossible endeavor this endeavor that is driving my life force take every minute one at a time 
accept and rise to whatever circumstance presents itself. Be in, in it full tilt, your best self. Summon your courage, your true grit. When the body fades, don't let negative edges of despair creep in. Allowing flecks of negativity leads to a Pandora's box syndrome. You cannot stop the doubts once you consent to let them seep into your tired, weakened brain. You must set your will. Set it now. Let nothing penetrate or cripple it. And now you'll hear what this, who this might be. Uh, I visualize pulling on a titanium helmet before the first stroke. This is my will. This strength of mind cannot be diminished. We think after our two failures that we know every possible roadblock that could emerge to thwart our journey, yet it is truly a vast, unfathomably power, powerful wilderness out there. This is a swimmer's Mount Everest, the great epic ocean endeavor of our blue planet. It has never been done. Strong swimmers have been questing across this ocean since 1950. No one has made it all the way across unaided. You can do this. You will do this. The mantra takes on a rhythm with each breath. Through the toe touches, the shoulder rotations, the body is warming and loosening. The mind is stealing. Just to jump ahead, this is Diana Nyad uh, about swimming from Cuba to the United States to Florida uh, in a, a book uh, that's inspiring called Find a Way. If you haven't read it, it's a very good paperback book now, uh, inspiring story of one woman's pursuit of a lifelong dream. But it also has a lot to do with how do you tolerate distress? How do you get through terrible things if really something matters to you a great deal? And of course, it's different than some of the things that we might think about, but it's, I think, overlaps. Um, at one point, she's saying uh, during this swim, which is a swim in 2010, after she had failed twice before over a 28-year period, she um, was, was making her next try and uh, she was 60 years old and uh, had come back to try to, to do this. And she's saying, uh, we're in sync, gliding toward the horizon. I let out our chant well up in my ears and sing it in my head a hundred times. Left arm, right arm, where are we swimming from? Left arm, right arm, Cuba. Left arm, right arm, where are we swimming to? Left arm, right arm, Florida. The night is coming. Every few minutes, the sky grows darker. I'm prepping my counting progressions and song list goals for the night. While it's true that it's best to take each minute unto itself, or at least each 90-minute session between feedings, my strategy also includes working on a bigger series of goals, and that's nighttime, getting through the daytime, getting through the nighttime, getting through the daytime, and now it's time to get into a groove until first light tomorrow. I'm going to start with Bob Dylan songs tonight. And then one more, just a section a few pages ahead of this that captures another aspect. These, to me, these are all have to do with kind of the spirit of trying to get something done in your life that's really hard or painful. Um, she says, uh, uh, I never look up and forward anxious to catch a glimpse of a palm tree by day, a flicker of landlights by night. All I would see is vast, depressing horizon. Better I should engage in this moment. Just keep working, turning my head like a programmed robot 52 times a minute toward Voyager. That's the boat in front of her. I never ask where we are. I never ask how we're doing. They never tell me. That is the cardinal rule. I just find that really helpful. And later, half a paragraph, just as I don't allow myself to start kvetching and complaining because then the cascade of grousing flows out of control, I also don't allow myself under normal circumstances to stop for a minute or two just because I'm fed up with the demands on my mind and my body. You start to take a minute here to stretch your legs, a minute there to float and trip out on the cloud formations, 
and pretty soon you're stopping for five here and five there. It all snowballs, and you're no longer in it the way you need to be in it, relentless to the end. Um, Here's where the strength of will becomes apparent. With the end goal firmly in mind, anything is possible. Even surviving and continuing after two potentially fatal box sting episodes during this particular swim, she was just devastated by um, jellyfish stings uh, for long periods that just about killed her. But without the destination brimming in the imagination, the will collapses. I take only 20 strokes, stop, and signal Bonnie and Mark that we are done. And and this this particular swim, she didn't make it. Um, She went ahead again a year later and did it again and on a fourth try, and then she did make it. And uh, so... I just wanted to start with that because now I'm going to jump into five particular principles that each of which kind of gives fuel to um, different things one needs to do to accomplish a lot, to get out of hell, to deal with suicide, to deal with just, you know, difficult emotional things in one's life. And um, what these five things are is boiling down DBT which is filled with so many things, so many strategies and skills and so many protocols and so many ideas. But I've really, after all these years of teaching it, I really have broken it down to where I think the, the essential ingredients, because there can't be like 190 essential ingredients, but to me these are the essential ingredients in trying to implement change in your life. And then... On another week, I'll do the essential ingredients in trying to use acceptance in your life. And then uh, I'll do another one, the essential ingredients of trying to use dialectics in your life when you're totally stuck. So here's the change-oriented ones. The first one of them, and all of these are are not using the terminology of DBT because I wanted to use the terminology of normal of normal life, normal people. <laughs> not that we're not normal, but you know what I mean. Um, but ones that people could relate to, even if they're not, even if it has nothing to do with therapy. Uh, so I'm just imagining people listening to this might each be applying this to different life situations. And I'll try to use some examples. So the first ingredient is to have direction. And it sounds so trite when I just say it, but it I've really spent so much time thinking about this that um, that you really need to designate a direction. If you're trying to change something, you're sick of something in your life. Let's say a fam- fa- many families I've worked with where I'm working with older parents and they have adult children that are really not doing well in their lives with or without an obvious mental illness. Um, but maybe somebody's not leaving their bedroom anymore. Maybe somebody's not going to work. Maybe somebody just keeps falling into substance use. Um, whatever it is, I mean, that would be a certain kind of example. Um, and then you want to change things. And it's so frustrating um, because you've tried this and you've tried that, and uh, it's not getting somewhere. And maybe that child also, that adult child, has also been trying this and trying that, and it hasn't changed. So whether you're the child or whether you're a parent or whether you're somebody who cares about that person, I think you need to define direction more than just, hey, I want to help my uh, son. Uh, I, want to help, I want to help myself. Um, okay, that doesn't tell you much. It does tell there's a certain level of energy for making things different. But the more specific you can be about really what you want to change and then put yourself in it try to find something you can put yourself in a hundred percent even if it's a small piece of the larger puzzle you're probably better off in my experience than if you try to apply yourself to the big challenge um, uh, itself whatever it is because uh, you'll be shooting like with a shotgun instead of being specific and, and thoughtful about it so this first idea of direction is that I've sort of come up with some um, several features of what I think is really to help you define uh, a direction. There are certain characteristics 
of defining what your direction is going to be, what your goal is going to be, what your objective is going to be, or in DBT, as we call it, what your target is going to be, that are really helpful characteristics of those things, and they make them go better. The first one I would say is that it be realistic. So let's say you do have a, a young adult in your family that won't leave their room for one reason or another, and they've really... Um, They've gotten really kind of like uh, that's, that's what their life has come to at this point in time. And you might have this idea, you know, I, I really want to get him out and get him to work or at least get him to volunteer somewhere or get him to socialize with people or just come to dinner every night with us, that's all. And it's possible, depending on the circumstance, that that direction, while absolutely understandable and compelling for one person, could be completely unrealistic. I mean, it may be so far from what's been happening for so long that actually it's probably not realistic. And you do want to shoot high, and you do want to go for something big, and I'll be talking about that in a while. But at the same time, you want to shoot low and find something you can succeed at and then go to another thing you can succeed at. So maybe a more realistic goal would be um, that once a week you're going to visit that child if they allow you in to visit. Uh, or you're just going to s just send that. With one family that I worked with at one point many years ago, they were in exactly this situation. And it was a heartbreak. And uh, they're upstairs, their uh, adult son lived in the house. And uh, after a while of, of us talking, the parents came to talk to me about what should we do. Nothing is working. He doesn't leave his room except in the middle of the night sometimes. He'll climb out the window and he'll walk around the area and then he'll come back, but he won't have it to, anything to do with us. So we made a plan that the goal was just to leave a tray of food outside the door uh, each day. And lo and behold... Uh, not whenever they were, never when they were looking, but he would take the food in. And that turned out to be a really important thing to do. It was like a nonverbal statement of, we're still here. We still care about you. We want you to have good, nutritious food, and we don't want to invade your space because obviously you need your space. So that was a, that was a realistic goal was to, that, and that they had control over was to put that food there. And that began to work, and little by little there were other things that were possible to do. Um, here's another example would be I have worked in the past with somebody who has a family member, a, a, a child, an adult child, who's estranged from him. Um, and it, it just kills him. It just kills him. I don't know if you, any of you know about estrangement, but it's such a devastating situation to be in, and there's lots of reasons for it uh, in each case. Uh, and it isn't like anyone's doing necessarily anything wrong, but it is a heartbreaking situation. And so one thing you might have, if you have a, an estranged family member, you know, it might be unrealistic to get them to agree to a phone call or definitely not a weekly phone call if they've gone to so much trouble to be out of contact. But it might be possible to figure out what is a direction, what is a goal that's doable, that's a step in that direction and that you can commit to 100% and one that you even have some control over. Um, and that might be that you're going to send that person a card uh, every week uh, that just has a completely non-invasive message uh, saying, you know, I just want you to know I'm, I, I think of you and I hope you're doing okay. Um, that doesn't ask anything in return and then uh, do that for a period of time and see if that turns out to be helpful. Another characteristic of directions that are helpful, I think, are that they really are specific. That's already been part of what I've been saying in being realistic, but also very specific. Um, a woman in a training I did, when she was talking, we were using, she was offering herself uh, as an example of somebody who was trying to solve a problem, and it was a very stubborn problem, you know, just one little problem in her life, but it meant a lot to her because it was with her fiancé. And she wanted her fiancé, she had always loved kayaking, 
and uh, on Saturdays for years she had gone kayaking as her like life activity meant a lot to her and now she has this fiance and they were compatible in so many ways but she started to notice that he was never there when she would come back from kayaking on Saturdays he he would be very hard to reach and so she wanted him to be there and so I said uh, in the trainings okay so so what is it you would want to change about him what is it you want him to do that he's not doing now and she said I want him to respect me I said okay what is it what would that mean I mean he he probably if I asked him if he respects you he probably would say he does she said yeah he would I said okay well then can you be more specific well I want him to respect the fact that I love kayaking okay now, if I were to ask him, uh, do you respect that your fiancé likes to kayak? My guess is he'll say yes. What do you think? She said, yeah, I think probably he would say yes, but he's not acting like that. He's acting like he doesn't want to be there. He's like, del- I think, deliberately not being available when I get back from kayaking before we go out on Saturday night. I said, okay, is there anything more specific you could ask of him that you could really fight for and ask for? and it might give you a better chance to succeed. She said, well, I want him to be there. At least I want him to be there when I get back from kayaking or at least be reachable by text pretty quickly. I said, oh, it feels like now we're getting to something that's very specific that you could ask of him, and you'll know whether, you'll know whether it worked. Um, and so she thought about that, talked about that. We all talked about it as a group, and then we practiced what she might do and that for those of you who know dbt this came up in the context of teaching skills and in particular the skill of dear man which is an acronym for a bunch of skills for asking for what you want and in an effective way and so um, that the difference between asking someone to respect you asking someone to love you asking someone to care about you all of which you want and you want manifest signs of that from somebody um, it's not necessarily going to get you as far in trying to change somebody's behavior. You might be saying, honey, I want you to love me. Well, you know, I want you to take better care of your health because, you know, it, it affects me in the long run. And, uh, and, and you might want to break that down to be more specific. Hey, I, I wish you would see the doctor. Um, because you're having some symptoms and I just think you're sort of avoiding it and I, I'm, I'm getting worried about it. So could you see the doctor? There's a specific thing that may or may not be easy to affect, but it's a lot easier or at least you've got a leg up compared to asking somebody to love you, to respect you, to care for you. So I think the more specific you can get, and this is true within DBT, when I ask somebody not just, hey, why don't you stop... Um, you know, cut back on injuring yourself. And uh, someone says, okay, I'll try. And that's really not as effective as saying, you know, I'd like, you, I'd like to ask you to not cut your arms anymore for the next year. Very specific. And usually when you say that, somebody is like really shocked and says, are you kidding? I do this all the time. I can't do that for it. Are you kidding? And you realize, yeah, you've hit, you've hit something there, and it's actually a better thing than the person who says, okay, yeah, I'll try to stop self-injuring, because there's really, to say you're going to try to do something is not, uh, not as, as effective. Like if you were a teacher and you gave an assignment to your students in high school, said, I want everybody to do this set of math problems, by tomorrow what you want to hear back from a student is not I'll give it a try though you might appreciate that it has a good ring to it but you want someone to say I will do it I'll do it I think it's going to be a hard one for me but I will do it you just know that when they say that they're more likely to do it now not in all cases some people are just good at saying that but usually that kind of specific commitment is more likely to bring about behavioral change. Okay. Um, the next characteristic be, besides being realistic and specific goals 
if you're trying to ask something of yourself, uh, is to make it, or of someone else, is to make it as clear also, as clear sort of overlaps with specific. By specific, I mean you really could behaviorally know if it's happening or not, and therefore it's more effective. Clear means that it's really obvious or understandable what it is you're asking. So um, I, I had a long slog in my life with trying to be a faster runner so that I could be a professional athlete. I never became close to that, but I was really driving hard when I was a kid and a teenager because I was somehow naturally a fairly slow runner, it seemed. But there was a certain time when I really, I started to go from, I'm going to go to the track or I'm going to go running and try to run faster. And then it's different if you say, you know what, I'm going to try to get from this part of town to that part of town in 10 minutes uh, and then nine minutes and then eight minutes, and it's very clear, and you really know you're aiming. There's some goalposts out there. It's not just a, a, a fuzzy destination. Or let's say somebody who's trying to get themselves to exercise more. So they say, I'm going to try to exercise more. Well, and there's somebody who doesn't exercise very much, or they go sporadically. It, they might be more effective if they decide, I'm going to exercise three days a week for 30 minutes each time, whatever it is. Um, and really get to do that if, and, and to aim for something that one can understand exactly what it is and can succeed at uh, or not and, no, and know whether it happened. The next very important characteristic, if you're asking somebody for, uh, to commit to a certain direction uh, to try to change behavior, whether it's yourself or someone around you, is that it be compelling. I mean, I see all the time in my job consulting to difficult uh, situations in mental health, community mental health, and hospital mental health, that staff members of programs are trying to get people to change uh, and asking them, asking uh, people who have mental illnesses to change certain behaviors which are so not compelling that it's just painful to watch. I've, I've sat there and watched when I've tried to consult the case and somebody's saying, well, you know, I, I remember one where a young man who had schizophrenia and he really had not uh, much going for him in his external life. Um, and the team was very frustrated with him. That's why they brought him for consultation. And they wanted him to, um, to, ha- to handle his money better, budgeting, and they wanted him to develop a goal uh, in the community, some kind of activity, all, you know, good-sounding things when it comes to, to the treatment of mental illness in the community. But you know what? Um, then I started, I jumped in, and I, I said to him, what, what are you willing to work on? What would be meaningful to you? And he turned to me, and without a second <laughs> dropped, he said, I'd like more cigarettes. I said, okay, so why don't you have more cigarettes? Well, with my Social Security money, which these guys handle, I'm only allowed a certain amount of money each week for cigarettes, and it's not enough. I would like more cigarettes. And I could tell when he was talking that his team was like thinking, this is not a good goal. But I thought very differently about it. I thought, this is where he is. This is a compelling goal. And it's a goal that maybe can be succeeded at. Now, do I like the health consequences of more smoking? No, you n- nobody does. Um, but I also thought, this is a man who appears motivated to do almost nothing. And I said, you know, so I turned to the team and I said, well, what's the problem? Why can't he have more cigarettes? They said, well, we really don't think that's a good way for him to spend his money. I said, why not? It's what he wants. Well, because, you know, you, we know, all of us know the bad effects of smoking. Said, I know, but he probably knows about that stuff too. Do you? Yeah, I know it's not good for me to smoke, but I just, if I'm smoking, I, I can just, I feel better during the day. I don't feel so depressed. I feel like I can do things. And so I, I, I really, I got the team to be willing to, to work on that. I, the harder thing was to get the team to be willing to have the attitude that that was, a, that was fine you know, that they were going with him. But I think if you go that way, as I did in this interview with him, after I got the team to agree to give him more cigarettes, 
And then I said, what else? Do you Anything else you want to talk about? Then he opened up about other things he would like to have in his life. And I think because even in those 20 minutes, he felt like, okay, we went after something and I got it. Um, I think he was a little bit excited about, about that. And the final characteristic of really good uh, goals or objectives to try to change are, are, are that if it be collaborative, that a person's not alone in the world. Uh, so hard. All of us know this. You know, I've just been, uh, two weeks ago, I had a hip replacement surgery. And uh, it, you know, I, and compared to a lot of surgeries, it's, it's very hopeful. And uh, even though it's painful uh, after the surgery and, and you're disabled for a little bit, it's not as long as one might think, as long, not as long as I thought it would be. I mean, it's in two weeks, I've gotten sort of up and walking around now with, with one crutch and I'm doing okay. When I was really alone for periods, um, it was just harder to get myself to do the exercises I'm supposed to do, which are unbelievably boring physical therapy exercises, and other things. Um, I mean, and um, it's amazing to me because I think of myself as such an independent spirit that when there were people around, even if they weren't directly doing anything with me, but they were knowing, like my wife, my kids, were, were knowing that I was going through this. That alone helped me do more. And so many people are struggling in the world in their own room or in their own apartment or in their own life or without any meaningful collaboration. So I think to the degree possible, like the cigarette example, is like, okay, let's have you guys join together and triumphantly agree on more cigarettes so there is a little more success here and a feeling of we're in this together and maybe that'll carry on to the next thing that you want to try to try to work on together. So I think if goals are done collaboratively, I mean, there's a reason that some of the great things in the history of successful businesses have been like Hewlett and Packard. It wasn't just Hewlett. It was Hewlett and Packard. The people who started Google were friends and collaborators, and they really clicked with each other. The people that started Microsoft were the same things. The people that started Starbucks was the same thing. When you're doing something that's, I'm just talking right now about businesses, because I've done some reading on what are the characteristics of businesses that really overcome all of the impediments to having a business that works. And a lot of it are these, six, these five characteristics of having realistic but big goals that are specific enough and clear enough when you break them down that are compelling because they're, a, they're aligned with what really matters to you or is fun for you. And then you're collaborating ab about it, which uh, sort of excites the brain. So um, I just wanted to, to, uh, to add that one in there and, and give you a couple more examples and then jump to the next principle. Um, this, this business of trying to accomplish a big thing in your life or the life of somebody you love, um, you do have to keep your eye on the prize, the big prize, but the big prize might be far away. You just don't know. And you really want to be able to dig in and push hard for some small thing or something that's smaller than the big prize, the big thing you're trying to do. Um, you know, so if you're gonna, if you've never run before and you want to, and you decide to make the outrageous decision, I am going to run the New York Marathon. Then my life will be meaningful. Well, you really have to focus on what it's like to run a quarter mile, and what are the joys, triumphs, pains of that. Um, but you keep in mind that you're aiming to build from that. But really, right now, you have to do that. So that when my son was in fourth grade, one of my sons, and he came home, and he, my kids have never loved the kind of reading and writing thing in school. And so fourth grade, he was given the biggest writing assignment he had ever had, which was that he was supposed to write a paragraph. It was September, write a paragraph about what happened during the summer. And uh, he was devastated. I mean, it was so sad. He just melted down and was crying and said, Dad, I can't do this. I can't write a paragraph. It's a whole paragraph. I don't know how to do that. I, I said, hey, you don't have to write a whole paragraph. Um, after I got that, trying to get him to agree to write a paragraph was too big. It was like 
reaching beyond what was realistic or compelling to him. I said, you know what, all you have to do is write a title. No, Dad, I don't. I have to write a whole paragraph. You don't understand. No, all you really have to do is write a title. You know what? Just write a title, and then let's go out and play catch with baseball. He says, but that's just a title. That's not the assignment. I said, I understand that. But just think, just what would be a good title? And he came up with a title of something he did in the summer. We went out and played catch for a while. And then I, we were coming back in. I said, you know what? You, all you really have to do is write the first sentence. Like the first sentence of a paragraph is like the sentence that says what it's going to be all about. So all you have to do is write one sentence, and then let's go play ping pong. Um, so he wrote a sentence. And, you know, we, we made it through that way, and it was because at that stage and with his particular brain, there was no way he could sit down and write a paragraph. The idea of writing a paragraph is like me running now with my replaced hip I'll go out and run a marathon tomorrow. It's ridiculous. Maybe I can walk down downstairs. Um, so I just wanted to, to give that uh, as, a, as an example. Now, realize that though I've spent a lot of time talking, I've talked about one principle, which is picking the right direction to aim for. It's huge. That's one reason why I said that much, but also each of these is important. I'm going to try to go um, do, do the others in a more summary form. Um, and uh, the second one is that once you have a direction to change something in yourself or a family member or somebody you care about, a patient if you're a therapist, you want to have not only a direction that's well-defined, that's somewhat doable, and that's meaningful, but also that you, at the beginning, that there's a certain amount of force that comes into play, like, okay, let's jump into this, not let's wade into it, let's back into it, let's jump into the first part of this, like with both feet and with force, or what I actually was just thinking today, I almost wish I had changed the term for this to thrust. I was thinking about physics and the meaning of force and momentum and thrust and things like that and velocity. And thrust when it comes to rockets and, and, and engineering is really that initial burst that is required to overcome inertia. Uh, and of course, inertia could mean somebody who's just not doing in their life what they want to be doing. You have to do a big deal to get things moving in the right direction. So, you, so when I ask a patient who cuts themselves every day during a period of their life, hey, I want you to stop cutting for an entire year, no cutting, it's asking... <laughs> A big deal, and most people, I have to negotiate downward from there and get them to agree to uh, one month, maybe two weeks. Uh, what I want people to, to be willing to try to do anything they're willing to do and then stretch it a little bit above that and then try to get force or what's called commitment in DBT going. Um, but I think this bold forceful beginning of things is, is important, even though you'll see that the next principle is going to be perseverance. You've got to have the momentum that gets going and keeps going, but you've got to have a start where somebody jumps in um, and, uh, and, and creates as much thrust as possible, you might say, and, and, and creates a kind of a breakthrough. There was a book uh, that I loved in 1994 called Built to Last, was a very um, popular, at least, maybe important. I don't know. I'm not in the business world, but uh, it was all about um, what were the characteristics or habits of visionary companies that had succeeded. And one of the things along these lines is that most of them started out with what they labeled a BHAG, B-H-A-G, BHAG, makes it easy to remember this, but it was called a big, hairy, audacious goal. It's really like saying, we're going to do this amazing thing, which sounds improbable, though not totally unrealistic. And it's sort of like, this is what we're going to do. And you get behind it and say, we're going to do this. I remember, for instance, when I came to Western Massachusetts and became the medical director for the Department of Mental Health and started to do some DBT training, at a certain point, I defined the goal for our system as being that I wanted 
there was very little DBT in the area at that time. Uh, I wanted there to be a, a high-quality DBT program uh, within 30 minutes of everybody in western Massachusetts. And so that meant by putting it that way, it now starts to create your agenda. Oh, we have to do training and get consensus and get uh, implementation in this number of places and, and in Greenfield and Springfield and Pittsfield and Northampton and all these other places. And so it sort of got us going and we were kind of excited. Wow, we're going to do this. Though that was probably years off. A BHAG usually is years off. But it does motivate you to get moving and then you have to define the little steps on the way. So your BHAG might be, we're going to have a family that can have conflict but also loves each other and gets through things and feels like we're on the same team, which maybe that family has never felt like. I mean, that would be a BHAG for a family that, that has always been at, at each other's throats. Uh, it'd be like, okay, maybe one person, maybe two people in the family say, we're going to do this. Our eye is on having a family, you know, that's not pleasant because, because we're all pretty intense people, but that really is on the same team at least. And then, you know, you're aiming for that. It, you can start to jump into whatever steps are going to be required. I wrote down, by the way, out of memory that uh, when I was thinking of this, I wrote down in front of me uh, that from Star Trek, those of us who watched Star Trek a lot, there's, there is the statement from Eugene Roddenberry, uh, we're going to explore strange new worlds and seek out new life and new civilizations and boldly go where no man or woman has ever gone before. As sort of a statement, it really is like when Kennedy uh, said, we're going to the moon. Um, so in your own family or in your own personal functioning, maybe you do want to get, maybe you've spent 20 years wanting to take better care of your physical health. And rather than just say, well, I'm going to keep trying, I'm going to make a New Year's resolution, you actually do a BHAG for yourself and say, you know what I'm going to do? By the end of this year, I'm going to do such and such with whatever, with whatever it is, which is really beyond what you've done. But it, it's sort of like, and if you can buy into that, you can start to generate some force. How do you generate force to things? Let's say you want someone in your family to be doing something or you want yourself to do something, is that you want to attach to the objective, whatever it is, you have to really get attached to it. Maybe that means you have to make the objective smaller. Maybe it means you have to connect the objective to larger objectives in your life, like you don't want to go to college, but actually you do want to have a life that includes certain things that are going to require going to college. And maybe it's going to take years before you can get yourself to the point where you pull that all together. I have a young woman I treated many years ago that drifted after one year of college for quite some time, years, and she took a couple courses here and there, and I don't know what happened. It was hard for her to articulate it, but there was a certain year, a certain point after her parents had kind of given up on trying to push her about it, and she was seeing me, and she came and she said, I'm going to go back to such and such college, the one she had been at, which was a real elite college and uh, was seemed like it would be over her head. I said, but maybe you should go back to a different college. No, I'm going, I'm going back there. Why are you going back there? Because I don't want to end up feeling like I failed there. And I thought, oh, I like this spirit. You know, this is the person who's putting her own BHAG out there. She's attached to this objective. Um, she's got some thrust, she's got some force, let's go for it. Um, and then another thing that helps you with getting uh, force is once you've got a direction and you're trying to strengthen your commitment to it, is that you start to get clear about the contingencies. It's really the pros and cons of why you're doing it and remind yourself, I am doing this thing that I don't want to do or that I think is too hard for me because five years from now, I want to have this in my life. You know, I've, I've worked with some parents that have to go very much slower with their adult child in trying to help them move forward in their lives because they're so anxious, of course, that they want to push their child, and all that seems to ever do is cause pushback. And so they have to actually kind of 
rethink the situation. And, and that level, trying to bite your tongue when you want to say something to your child because they're not doing anything, it's really hard. And so you have to really know why are you doing this? And you have to remind yourself, and it, it helps if you're collaborating with someone else who, who can, uh, you can remind yourselves together. Um, in DBT, one of the nice things that can be extrapolated to life in general is commitment strategies. And um, I think I'm trying to think how to use these last ten, nine minutes because i obviously not going to cover everything. But um, I'll just say, the, the commitment strategies are great in DBT. They are specific strategies the therapist uses to try to uh, help people strengthen their commitment to their goals and, their, and, the, and the treatment as a whole. And um, they are things, that every one of them, that can be used in ordinary life in getting yourself to increase your own force of commitment of uh, whatever you're trying to do. And they include some things I've already said. You try to, one of them is you try to connect to things you've done before that are really hard and remind yourself when you're thinking, I'm not going to be able to do this, that you actually have done hard things. Every single person has done hard things somewhere along the way. And you remind, you kind of accumulate these like in a basket and say, I have done this and this and this. I've done hard things. I can do this. Um, and so that's one strategy in itself. It's usually called connecting to prior commitments. Um, and reminding yourself of the commitment that you made to this thing, whatever you're doing, because it, if it's a hard one, it's going to go away. And then another one is uh, to, uh, to be really bold and shoot high, and that's called uh, a door-in-the-face commitment strategy, like go for broke, go for something that's beyond what seems realistic. But at the same time, you might need to back down into a... Uh, the other side of that is the foot-in-the-door strategy, like get yourself to realize that, you know what, let's just start with getting our feet in the door, like one step at a time here. But on the other hand, I want to shoot for the moon here. So somehow you find a balance between these two. So you feel like you are shooting for the moon, but you're doing something realistic in the moment. There's a strategy called pros and cons, which most of us have done many times in our lives where you're considering uh, why it is that you want to do what you're doing. You have to remind yourself uh, of what the advantages are and what the disadvantages are. So you're not just suppressing the disadvantages. It, it's going to be hard. There's another strategy called freedom to choose where you remind yourself that you, this is your business to choose because as soon as you start to feel you're trapped, in something, even if it's something of your own making, something of your own decision making, you know, as soon as you start to feel trapped, and especially if you feel trapped by somebody else wants you to do something, it's just really hard to uh, be very excited about that. You know, you just mostly want to get out of that, and it makes it makes it hard. Um, I want to talk about one more principle um, before we stop, and that's perseverance. Uh, so we've got direction, and we've got force. But now, of course, I think I've already alluded to this, that the force has to do with getting an initial strong uh, thrust or commitment going, but then you have to keep it going. Now, it might not keep going at the same level. It's, you know, you get into day, daily life after being excited about trying to accomplish something, and so many people uh, of, of all stripes, uh, so many people of all kinds, uh, put their themselves, this is why New Year's resolutions, um, the largest percentage of that number are done by mid-February, um, because people do put themselves into things, they jump into things, and then they, it fades. So you really have to have a perseverance plan. You have to somehow, now in DBT, um, my favorite way of doing that, of course the perseverance plan is that you're meeting with your therapist every week. You're meeting with a group every week. You're having homework assignments every week. And you're filling out a diary card about how you're doing every week. And if the therapist uses that diary card in a helpful way, it might start to seem like not such an onerous task, but actually a way to get gold stars, so to speak, on your calendar. You know, if, if you come in and you've done something or something has changed and, you're, and the therapist in DBT uses that as an opportunity to reinforce somebody for doing, for keeping working, 
you know, there's a kind of a weekly perseverance uh, enhancer going on there. And you really, people can't do without that. I can't do without that. When I wrote the book that I wrote um, about DBT principles, it took three and a half years from the time I started writing. And I made a deal at the beginning because I know what I'm like and how my perseverance was going to flag. It's hard to find time to write on a regular basis. But what I did was, uh, I did several things, but one, one, maybe the most important was my perseverance enhancer, so to speak. I, asked, I said it with the, uh, the publisher, which was named Guilford Press, the editor that was working with me on this book. I said, I want to talk to you every week until this book's done. Every week. Can we set up a regular appointment? And when that appointment's coming, I'm going to send you whatever pages I've re- written recently, and then you please read them, and then we'll get on the phone and talk it over where things are going. It was so unbelievably helpful. It absolutely kept me on track in a long book that it is very deeply meaningful to me and was very hard to write. It was joyful to write in some ways, but hard. But I knew it would be hard. I knew that it was going to be hard to sustain it. So I needed a perseverance enhancer. And if you're trying to change something about how you manage your emotions, how you manage your physical nature, how you manage your family, or how you manage you know, somebody you care about, um, you're going to need perseverance enhancers, monitors, people who, who are your accountability partners, so to speak. So you know, um, I just wanted to, to emphasize that that's another part, and that's three out of the five principles. So I had hoped to get through all five, but I should know myself better than that by now. Um, those three, I'll just tell you what the other two are, and I'll return to them when, when I have an, another podcast where I continue to teach the, uh, the 15 really ingredients, I think, of climbing out of hell. Um, these are three of them. Um, the other two in the change category, the next one would be intelligence. And intelligence means that you may develop a direction and you may develop a lot of force and compelling feelings about it and you're going to push for it and you're going to do it. And you may even build in some perseverance. But if you don't work, if you don't try to solve it in a way that is smart, that really pays attention to how the world works and how you work and how your nervous system works or how the nervous system works of the person you're trying to do something with and change, then you're going to be doing, it's going to be very frustrating because you'll push and push and push and push, but maybe you've just missed the boat. You've just missed how this person works, that this is not a person, for instance, who ever moves forward because of praise. It may be this person only moves forward when they do something and nobody says anything. And if you know that about that person, it, it may require a lot of patience. But you have to harness that patience along with your sense of caring and urgency. And you really might have to be patient and, and, not, and not say a word and let somebody go about it at their own pace until they're ready to go further. And maybe then they'll actually ask for your help or your, your input. But so that would be just one, one little example of being intelligent. Intelligence in DBT groups together three sets of activities that are very important for a therapist. One is assessment of what is the problem, getting a clearer and clearer assessment of the variables that control a behavior or, or inhibit a behavior. A second um, having a, um, a way to conceptualize those ingredients that come out of an assessment. Like, okay, so this is the most important thing, this is the next most important thing, and here's how this works. It's sort of like getting the anatomy and the physiology of the problem. And then, third, out of that, you develop a treatment plan. And I think in a, in a home, in a family, and in a person, you can have your own treatment plan based on a sophisticated knowledge of yourself as you function, the way I knew that I needed a perseverance enhancer or I would never have written that book. I knew that about me. And the last thing, just before I stop, is the last uh, of the five principles for change just uh, means that you have to have the techniques, you might say, available in you, in your repertoire, to do the things that are going to be required 
of the previous four. I mean, you have to know how to do whatever it is you're going to be doing. If, if you know, to, know how to run on a treadmill, you know, know how to get yourself to run on a treadmill, which is even harder. Uh, know how to regulate your anxiety. And so there's a lot to be said about that, and I will be coming back to it. So much was said here. I, I hope that it'll be useful. Um, some of it is written in a blog in my website, uh, charlieswenson.com, and much of it is also written in my book, though that's specific to DBT and psychotherapists. So I will be talking to you next time along with Cedar Coons about solutions for her in dealing with her sister's uh, death and suicide. So I uh, hope this is helpful. I'll talk to you next week. Bye-bye.